0: Montpelier is the former home of James Madison, the fourth president of the United States, the father of the Constitution, and the architect of the Bill of Rights. Montpelier is also a former slave labor camp. James Madison held more than 100 African Americans in bondage at Montpelier, never freeing a single soul, not even upon his death. Historic preservationists have been busy at Montpelier telling the story of slavery and freedom. They have reconstructed portions of the enslaved quarter, rebuilt the cabin of the freedman George Gilmore, and recreated a Jim Crow-era railroad station. Meanwhile, archaeologists have conducted ongoing digs at the property that have uncovered remarkable remnants of the material culture of the enslaved people who lived there. And two years ago, museum curators unveiled a permanent exhibition about slavery at Madison's Plantation and Beyond called The Mere Distinction of Color. In 2018, I took 10 Ohio State students to Montpelier to explore the evolution of the color line from the nation's founding through the present. And for four days, we absorbed all that Montpelier had to offer. We even spent an evening in Charlottesville with a community activist who shared her personal account of the tragic events of the summer before, when white nationalists descended on the city intent on terrorizing African Americans, Jews, and Muslims. But before all that, we began our Montpelier experience with a tour of Madison's mansion. The high point of the Montpelier house tour is Madison's library. When standing in Madison's library, it is easy to imagine him sitting at his desk, gazing out of the window that faces the front yard of the mansion, taking in the sweeping view of the rich, verdant, rolling hills, made productive and profitable by the people he enslaved, while he crafted the core elements of the Constitution. We completed the house tour by walking the ground surrounding the mansion, This part of the tour was especially significant. As the docent discussed the architecture of the house, she noted that the bricks used to construct the building were all made by hand, on site by enslaved African Americans. And if you look closely, she said, in some of the bricks you can see the handprints left by the enslaved people who made them. I urged the students to move closer, to get a good look at the handprints. I also encouraged them to reach out and touch them. And as they did, they noticed something odd. The handprints were much smaller than their own. That's because the handprints were those of children. On James Madison's plantation, the bricks used to build his mansion were made by the African-American children he enslaved. In a couple of weeks, I'm taking a second group of Ohio State students to Montpelier. I want them to visit Madison's library to see where American history happened. And I want them to touch the bricks made by the children Madison enslaved to see how American history happened. You see, the students need to understand that the library in which Madison conceived of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights rests on a foundation of bricks made by the African-American children he enslaved. Teaching hard history means helping students understand that Americans don't just stand on the shoulders of mythological giants like those who wrote the U.S. Constitution. They also stand on the shoulders of enslaved African-American children, because these children were among those who made it possible for enslavers to construct the nation we live in today. This process of helping students understand the hard history of American slavery has to begin in the elementary grades. Young learners need to be inoculated against the myths about American history, myths that perpetuate falsehoods, about the past and the present. This is no easy task, but it is doable. It is also necessary. I'm Hassan Kwame Jeffries, and this is Teaching Hard History, American Slavery, a special series from Teaching Tolerance, a project of the Southern Poverty Law Center. This podcast provides a detailed look at how to teach important aspects of the history of American slavery. In each episode, we explore a different topic, walking you through historical concepts, raising questions for discussion, suggesting useful source material, and offering practical classroom exercises. In our second season, we are expanding our focus to better support elementary school educators to spend more time with teachers who are doing this work in the classroom, and to understand the often hidden history of the enslavement of indigenous people in what would become the United States. Talking with students about slavery can be emotional and complex. This podcast is a resource for navigating those challenges so teachers and students can develop a deeper understanding of the history and legacy of American slavery teaching about slavery is challenging especially in elementary school classrooms but children encounter slavery in one form or another as soon as they begin school it can be tempting to focus only on heroes and avoid explaining oppression but our omissions speak as loudly as what we choose to include. And what children learn in the early grades has broad consequences for the rest of their education. So we've been thinking a lot about how to do a better job. In this episode, we're going to take a closer look at a first-of-its-kind framework that teaching tolerance has created to introduce slavery to elementary students. Kate Schuster is the project director for the Teaching Hard History Initiative. And she's going to explain what's in the new framework for K-5 through educators, including useful source materials. We're also going to hear from four elementary school teachers about how and why they're beginning to use the framework in their classrooms. I'll see you on the other side. Enjoy. I'm really excited to welcome to the podcast Kate Schuster. Kate, how are you doing?
1: I'm great, Hassan. I'm a long time listener, first time caller.
0: <laughs> and much more than that, we actually get to pull the curtain back on the Teaching Hard History American Slavery podcast. And what's revealed behind the curtain is Kate. And Kate is really a magician. She's the one that has done so much work in leading this team and putting not just the podcast together, but the framework and the material and the resources. We don't have Any of this stuff without you, Kate. So it's good to have the mic in front of you so everybody gets to hear about your wisdom and knowledge.
1: That's really great to be here. I always like when I get to have a chat with you about anything. So thanks for having me.
0: Of course. So tell us about the new K through 5 framework for teaching American slavery.
1: Okay. It is a project that was about 18 months in the making. And I had the honor of leading the framework construction process. There were dozens and dozens of sets of eyes of reviewers and educators and people that we consulted from across the education spectrum to try to build an architecture for teachers that they could use to teach about slavery in meaningful ways that would be appropriately structured throughout the K-5 to ecosystem. So I was the lead author, but there are several other authors that I just want to mention, and our listeners will hear from all of these folks this season on the podcast. There's you, Meredith McCoy, who's your co-host, Margaret Newell, Sarah Shear, Christina Snyder, and Ebony Thomas are all folks that worked very hard on this document. So the process really was beginning by asking teachers at different grade levels throughout K-5 to what they did, what they wanted to see, and what would help them to support instruction. And there were a lot of challenges there. The idea of the framework was to create a diversity of access points for teachers. You know, the elementary education system is very different from the way that we teach history in secondary grades. An elementary teacher They have a diverse skill set. They teach all of the subjects, usually, and so they will have a classroom where they can easily integrate literature as well as history instruction, math, and science. So in many ways, they have these opportunities as educators to weave subjects in seamlessly, but it also means that sometimes they don't have dedicated time or strategies for specific content. So what we wanted to do was create something that would go with lessons that teachers already had. So it wasn't like we were trying to have a giant footprint in their classrooms and crowd out valuable time for all the other stuff that young students need. And also to meet students where they are in age-appropriate and culturally sustaining ways and to have diversities of situations where teachers could begin to integrate instruction about slavery into the classroom. So the framework the way that it's structured, what we settled on was a set of 20 essential knowledge items. And there's 10 for each grade band. So in elementary education, we talk about the K to 2 grade band and then the 3 to 5 grade band. And each of those grade bands in the framework has, we've identified 10 items of essential knowledge that are roughly chronological but more so conceptual. So beginning with talking about the nature of freedom and power moving through a history sequence so that by the time they get to the end of fifth grade, they're really talking about the Civil War and beginning to talk about the aftermath of the Civil War. So we're trying to create a way for teachers to set up this history education that will easily transition students into a secondary history context.
0: There was an incredible amount of work that I know went into crafting the framework A lot of thought went into how to structure it, what essential knowledge points go into which of the bands. I'm really interested and intrigued by what teachers will have to say about the framework when we put it in their hands. But I know we've already shared it with a small handful of teachers who teach slavery and want to teach slavery. And we're going to hear from them in this episode. Can you say a little bit about what they are going to talk about that we'll hear here.
1: Yeah. So we'd started taping the teachers before school had started because we wanted to get their input. And we asked them some questions about the framework. We asked them to identify an essential knowledge area that really spoke to them. We asked them what they would do in their classroom to use it. We asked them why. They really thought that it was important to cover that material with their students. And we also asked them to talk about the challenges they thought they might face and what strategies they would use to overcome those.
0: So, Kate, you explained that the framework contains and consists of these essential knowledge points, 10 for each of the two grade bands. Could you describe for us how each of these essential knowledge points are structured?
1: Yeah, definitely. Each essential knowledge point is an entryway for a teacher to explore the content. And so, for example, essential knowledge one starts with saying that students should be encouraged to think and talk about the meaning of freedom. And that's really a learning goal for a teacher to have in their classroom. But There's much more in the framework than just those declarative sentences. So when a teacher opens the framework and looks at Essential Knowledge 1, what they'll see first is a section that says, what else should my students know? And there are several items underneath Essential Knowledge 1 that support that instruction. So, for example, being free means being able to choose what your life looks like without interference from others. There are several details under there that are things that students should know in support of comprehension of these main essential knowledge topic. So if you think of an essential knowledge, it's like a topic sentence, and then there are supporting details under there that will help teachers get students to understand the essential knowledge item itself. And then under those details, there's a whole other section for each of the essential knowledge items that says, how can I teach this? And in there, there are strategies for teachers to use in their classrooms. Sometimes we are recommending specific texts that are grade appropriate. Sometimes we're recommending strategies for teachers to group students and discussion strategies. And sometimes we're recommending activities for the classroom that will all support that specific essential knowledge item. So the essential knowledge is a gateway. Teachers, once they enter the gateway, will find a selected suite of resources and strategies that will allow them to accomplish that learning goal. Wow. And then under the how can I teach this part, which is attached to each essential knowledge item, there are strategies and examples for teachers. So, for example, in EK1, we suggest that teachers begin with examples from their classroom, families and communities to have students examine how power is gained and used and explained. And then they should describe what it means to have power and identify ways that people can use power to help harm and influence situations. So what that is, is a fairly specific advice for guidance for teachers. And another example in there is that we're encouraging students to contrast equity and equality and think about current problems where there is a need to fight for equity and equality. And also in that essential knowledge, we're encouraging teachers to use many books, including those books that they might otherwise just be using to teach reading as springboards for these conversations. So emphasizing that teachers don't need to have texts that are specific to slavery to begin the discussion about these underlying ideas about freedom, power, equity, equality, and choice with young students.
0: Kate, as you know, teaching American slavery to young children, to elementary school students is extremely challenging. But this framework is really exciting. Are there elements within it that really have you excited about the potential for this in the classroom?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. The big idea that I'm really excited about is the idea of giving tools to teachers to help students think like historians and so critically examining the way that history is often presented, and looking for hidden histories that sometimes won't be in the texts or they encounter or the stories that they read. And I'm also really excited that the framework has a broad and inclusive approach, and really hoping that teachers will be inspired to work on their own practice and find new ways to teach history in their classrooms, moving beyond, for example, a British colony-centric story of American history, talking about connecting the dots between the theft of indigenous land and the growth of the plantation system, thinking about incorporating histories of Native nations more extensively into the story that they're telling about American history. So I, I hope that educators will look at this framework and see opportunity to tell new and exciting and engaging stories in their classrooms. And that's really what we've tried to do here is collect interesting, engaging, solid history together in one place so that teachers won't have to do so much work themselves and instead can enjoy the vocation of teaching, which is why they do it. I don't think they do it for the money,
0: is my suspicion. I don't think you would get too much disagreement (laughs) on that last point in particular. (laughs) You know, I'm excited to hear what the teachers... Who have already seen the framework. Think about it. So first, we're going to hear from Bria Wright. Bria is a fifth grade teacher in Wake County, North Carolina, and she's going to talk a little bit about why she's trying to incorporate essential knowledge number one into her lessons, which is that students should be encouraged to think and talk about the meaning of freedom.
2: So this essential knowledge um, really spoke to me personally because I think freedom means different things to different people, depending on who you are, your background, what you believe in. Freedom can look differently for different people, and especially for children. They come in with all these different ideas of what freedom looks like, what being free looks like based on their backgrounds and their beliefs. So it's really cool to be able to talk about that and see what other kids think are their different ideas of what freedom is. And this is really important because in the news, we see lots of different issues of freedom, right? So we think specifically like the border crisis, Who's getting freedom? Who's not able to have freedom? Who's able to freely be in this country and who's not just based off of where they were born? And is that okay? Absolutely, it's not okay. You should be able to go somewhere and live somewhere and be able to be free and to love and to get a job and support your family. So that piece of what freedom looks like and what it means really just means something different to different people. So that's what really spoke to me about it. Something that also really spoke to me was thinking about how has freedom historically not been afforded to people of color? If we go all the way back before even the slave trade, if we think about Native Americans that were here first, this was their land. We are on stolen land. How come they had people come over from Europe and had their land taken away from them? And some of them were then enslaved. And so they had their freedoms taken away, but this was their space, right? And then we think about, Moving on in history, we think about the African folks that were brought over and then taken to be enslaved. How are they limited to freedom? So we still see these things over and over as we continue on in history. we still see these things today, how come people of color still have these limited freedoms? Because it's not just like this happened in our history. It's still reoccurring to this day when we think about education, who is passing standardized tests, who is able to live wherever they want, who is not able to live wherever they want, who is caught up in the criminal justice system and can't access freedoms because of historically oppressive rules, laws, and things that are keeping people from being the best that they can be. So when I think about how to actually like teach freedom and making this really abstract concept concrete for fifth graders, it can be overwhelming, but it also can be really empowering for us to think about and explore together. And the first place that I would start would be for them to explore their own definition of freedom? What does that mean to you? What does that mean in different spaces? What does freedom look like as a student? What does it look like as a child? What does it look like on a sports team or whatever you're a part of, just different parts of their identity, but what does that actually look like? And then having them to interview their family, their peers, and their friends to really figure out what does freedom look like to them so that they can kind of come up with their own definition before we as a group talk about freedom and what it looks like. And of course, we'd have to be mindful that that will be very abstract for some students. So being able to specifically give them concrete ideas of, okay, does freedom look like this? Yes or no. So they can kind of make their own definitions, but having that scaffold will help them to kind of figure out what does freedom look like. And we have to be mindful that students will also need to be instructed of what it looks like to not have freedoms, right? So when we think about the border crisis that I mentioned earlier, These people are trying to come to our country and to have a better life, but they're being stopped from doing so. They're being stopped from having a freedom. That is a problem. How can we help solve that? And then other lack of freedom that we've seen historically, whether we've seen it in our country or other countries. How has freedom been taken away or how have people not been able to access freedom? These are all things that we should help students understand so they can see not everybody has been afforded freedom and not everybody still is free. How can we help that as we move forward? And then. We think specifically about with American enslavement, what freedoms were withheld from folks that were enslaved and how does that continue to manifest today? All of these kind of things would be questions that I would definitely pose to students, but they would be grounded in reading. They'd be grounded in some type of nonfiction text that we've read together and we've dissected together. So they have a basis to go off of. I don't want them just to pull, oh, well, my mom said this and my dad said this. No, let's ground what we're saying in the actual facts in the text. And this all comes from, like, carefully selecting text, right? But as teachers, we have to be critical about what kind of resources we bring into the classroom, which is why I really like the teaching tolerance resources, because I know they already have been highly vetted, and they're going to make the students think critically, and they're not going to be part of these problematic texts that we see schools use. And so when we use these carefully selected texts, we want to think about what characters, if we think about fiction texts, can we find texts that... People are experiencing freedoms or having their freedoms taken away so that kids can think about, okay, well, how are their freedoms being taken away? What systems are stopping people from being free, right? We know that racism is systems put in place to stop folks of color from advancing. So how can we have the kids to think about how these systems work together? Systems are made up of people, and how are these people stopping others from being free? So another way to think about teaching this would be thinking about Specifically, like an essential question for a unit could be what freedoms were withheld from enslaved Africans and how does that still continue and manifest today? So when I think about freedoms that were withheld, specifically land ownership, education and wealth accumulation, these things are all withheld and we still see these things manifesting today. So when we think about education... Where's our achievement gap is between our black students and our white students. But enslaved folks, it was illegal for them to even learn how to read. And that's horrible. And we still see these things manifesting today. But what I think is important to note, even though that freedom was withheld, there were still enslaved folks that were still like, nope, still going to do it. They were fighting that resistance. They were still out here actively trying to learn to read, which I think is a very great counter narrative to what education has written for black folks and saying that, Black folks don't care about education. They don't care about learning. So I love that counter narrative when we learn about different folks that were enslaved and they were like, no, we're still going to learn to read. And of course, not everybody was able to learn to read, but you had to have someone that could read to teach you to read. So again, that was an obstacle to overcome. Not everybody was able to overcome that. And then land ownership. Enslaved folks were counted as pieces of property, but the Folks that owned the enslaved people, they had plenty of land, right? Of course, that's why they had folks that were enslaved to do the labor for them. And folks that were enslaved, were they able to get land? No. We all know that after slavery ended, folks were promised 40 acres and a mule, and that was not 100% upheld. And so, again, we have a huge gap. We can free those that were enslaved. Now you are free, air quotes, but you have no land or nothing to go off of. So, the white people that had land were already a step ahead. People take care of their land and generationally that land goes down the line generations. And so we still see a gap between black landowners and white landowners. Again, another way that manifests. And then wealth, who has money and who doesn't, who's able to come to neighborhoods that are predominantly black, who's able to come in and buy out whole entire areas and then push black folks out. And these are all issues of things that are how it's still maintained today. We can see these if we just look at the news. You can see lots of information about gentrification. You can find any kind of data that shows the different gaps between land ownership and the wealth gap. And that's a great way to tie in social studies and math, right? You can look at the gaps. You can analyze the data and see, oh, wow, that's a huge gap. Uh, And so that's a great way just for the kids to be able to visually see, okay, how much land do white people own versus black people? Then and then even still now, you know, of course, it has continued to rise. Black folks, you know, have accumulated wealth and gained land. But is it at the same rate that their white peers are able to have land and able to accumulate wealth? The biggest thing I want my kids to walk away after they leave my classroom in fifth grade is to know that systems are made of people and people can change. People are malleable. We can help people understand. We can help people Make changes and think about things differently from an equity lens. Sometimes I think my kids get caught up in thinking that oh systems are just machines and they just run and they run and run because the way they've been doing it for forever that's how they run. I'm like no, like we can be part of those systems to help change. I tell my kids I'm like that's why it's so important that you make sure you vote when they're of age, of course, "um, and make sure that their family votes and make sure that the people they care about vote. You can be part of this political system and you can really disrupt some stuff. You can really get in there and. Say, well, you know, this is how things have been for forever, but why can't we do things different? It's up to us to really challenge the status quo. So anytime you, as a teacher, you're going to start engaging in conversations about anything to do with American enslavement, anything to do with identities, there's always going to be pushback. What I've encountered is there's sometimes pushback from parents or from district officials about teaching these things because we want to make sure we're not attacking anybody's identity. So if I ever receive that feedback, I always very open and say, well, you know, we're not challenging anybody's specific identities, but we're thinking about how these different systems have played out over time and how can we change it. So I like to overcome this with like common language and understanding. And so we start off with using protocol. I use the Courageous Conversations Protocol. Glenn Singleton wrote a really great book about having courageous conversations about race. So that's a starting place for me. We have common language. We know that Saying that someone is black is not a curse word. That's not a mean thing to say, right? We're just identifying identities. Saying someone white is not racist either. It's okay. It's identifying identities. But setting up the protocol really sets up the four corners of the room and sets up the walls for the room to be able to have these conversations. Anytime I've had a conversation with someone that's pushed back, I'm like, "Oh, I don't know. I don't know if fifth graders are ready for that. I'm like, well, they're experiencing the world around us. They're ready for it. They're experiencing these microaggressions, macroaggressions, they're experiencing racism, they're seeing these things. It's part of our curriculum in North Carolina to teach about American history. So we need to teach these things, but we need to also make sure we're being critical about it and making sure we are developing students that can think critically about it and think about how they can help make the world even better. The hard part, even as a teacher, is it's hard for me to teach sometimes because like some of these things are really triggering for me to think about American enslavement. My ancestors were subjected to this horrible treatment, but what also empowers me is to continue to do this work so we don't go back to a place like that, so we can make sure we're continuing to always move forward. And it can also be hard for students to understand that, like, these systems are continuing to manifest. I've had pushback sometimes where people are like, oh, well, we are a post-racial society, and I'm like, well, unfortunately, that's not true, and I can tell you specifically as a Black woman, that's 100% not true. So those obstacles are hard, but I always like to overcome them by helping parents or whoever understand, like, we're doing this to help students move forward. I'm not presenting them any information to say you need to vote for a certain candidate. You need to make sure you think like this, but giving the kids the facts on the table and then they can then make their own decisions moving forward, of course. But I think this is really important work. I call this heart work because a lot of what we're doing, we think about freedom or we think about American enslavement or those who have not experienced freedom, it makes us reflect on who we are and are we experiencing freedoms ourselves and how have we stopped others from being free. As a teacher ourselves, it's the beginning of the school year. We have lots of rules posted. We print all these rules out and these beautiful posters and post them up before the kids get there without even having their voice of what freedom looks like in our classroom space. So, yes, it's hard to have these conversations about freedom with kids. It's hard to talk about American enslavement. But just because something is hard doesn't mean we got to not do it. We definitely still have to do it because this is how we move the work forward. We move this work forward by engaging and leaning into those tough conversations so that we can continue to progress as a society.
0: It's really obvious to me that Bria Wright is taking seriously not only enslaved people as thinkers about the life condition in which they find themselves, but that she's taking her students seriously about the life condition in which they find themselves. And that allows, I think, and I think she's right here, for her to guide the students in a really substantive conversation about what freedom means, drawing not only on their own life experiences, but then circling it back to how that would apply. To the past so that they could better understand the experience of enslaved people. Really remarkable.
1: Yeah, I think there's some, some really great stuff going on there. I'm really impressed by her approach. One thing that really stands out to me is the way that she's explicitly figuring out how to talk to her students about systemic racism and systemic oppression. I think that a lot of times Students come into classrooms and so do adults come into life with this idea that racism, for example, is about bad people behaving badly. And there certainly are a lot of bad people who behave badly, but that does not explain the existence and perpetuation of systems of oppression. And we have to start that instruction early with students and help to guide them to that understanding. Otherwise, it becomes very difficult for them to understand the trajectory of history and why it is that oppression continues in polyvalent ways for all kinds of people throughout history and in the present day. So I think that it's really important that she's embedding that instruction in the early grades.
0: Yeah, no, you're right. It's so critical to move beyond individual behavior, to look at systems and structures and the way they operate and have operated in the past so that they can, even at this young age can see how they operate in the present. And you can do that. That's one of the great values of talking about how slavery operated, not just, you know, one or two bad people who chose to participate in this heinous activity, but the way in which the entire system was structured to benefit individuals and to build a nation. When she added those key terms in there, not only talking about freedom, but power and systems. I mean, that was really a good way, I think, to build off of this key point of essential knowledge.
1: Yeah, and one last thing is just to circle back from where you started, which is this question of agency. The reason that this framework starts with freedom is because we want to center agency of people. And too often when we talk about slavery, for example, We don't center the humanity of people who were enslaved. And so if we start with freedom instead of starting with oppression, I think it really encourages us to see enslaved people as humans, which is something we need to start with
0: young. And start with young because it's something that traditionally we don't do. So you're absolutely right. Every opportunity that we can to highlight, underscore, point to, the humanity of the people who are being held in bondage, we absolutely need to do that because that will help, I think, students as they move through the grades, keep that focus and attention, especially when the emphasis might shift to depersonalizing as well as dehumanizing the institution as a whole.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think you're super right about that.
0: So Bria Wright talked to us about essential knowledge point number one. But now we're going to hear from Marvin Reed. Now, what does he focus on?
1: He is a third grade teacher in Berkeley, California, and he's going to be talking about essential knowledge number seven, which is still in that K-2 to grade band. And that essential knowledge reads like this. Students should know that enslavers exploited the many types of highly skilled labor of enslaved people for their own profit.
3: The power of representation in the classroom matters. It matters because our students of color need to see that they are successful. They need to see that they're just not getting killed on the TV or in prisons. Our people of color have done great things, but the representation as far as in the literature, the history, the media, it's not where it should be. And this is why I teach the way that I teach. Because if I can change this mastery narrative in my classroom, my students can be scientists. They can go out in the world and make a difference. But students can't be it if they don't see it, which means that I and all of us educators need to make sure that we are doing our jobs to provide those students that vision. Something I really enjoy doing in my classroom are gallery walks, whether it be in math or it be in ELA, but gallery walks in history. I'll take pictures, images, sometimes videos, and I'll have those in a gallery walk setting. So with a gallery walk, you could have different stations. And at every station, there's a different activity. So at one station, you would have a piece of butcher paper and maybe glue or staple a picture to there. And I've done this for Black History Month. I laid out a bunch of photos of African-Americans, some holding achievements. I had me in there graduating from school. And then within their group, you would say, all right, I want you to write down whatever comes to your mind, whether it could be words or words pictures so that way you're giving students different opportunities and different ways to show their learning, whether it's through writing or drawing. Well, how does this make you feel? What do you see here? So that would be one station. Then to station two, I had Mother to Son, the Langston Hughes poem playing. And I gave the lyrics were there. So I'm using different forms of media for them to be able to listen to this poem by Langston Hughes, a great poet. And I had the students write down what words are sticking out to you. What do you think those words mean? The third station I had the students go to was a research corner. And in the research corner, it was a bunch of literature, whether from Frederick Douglass to Little Rock 9, Fire from the Rock by Sharon Draper. I had a whole bunch of literature that I had sticky noted, uh, certain parts that I wanted them to see and find common patterns. Like, what do you notice within all these books? What's the common thing that you're seeing? Some students wrote, oh, I see signs. I see no blacks, only whites. I'm seeing people being treated bad. Okay, so you're seeing that for that station. And the last station was my most powerful station. I took a newspaper from the bombing of Birmingham, and it said four girls killed in church bombing. And I had them write on this butcher paper, what do you see here? How does this make you feel? So now I'm teaching the kids empathy. How does it make you feel knowing that kids your age about your age were killed and they didn't do anything wrong and and having them think like wow like that's not right and what can we do different so then after we've collected all that data i come back and i pretty much plug in common themes about what they notice so group four what did you notice we noticed this, Uh, we heard this in the video, Um, we saw this, okay, group three, what did you notice from your station? So I'm having students collaborate, I'm having them getting up and moving around the room, and I'm also collecting data for me to gauge my instruction. Okay, so my students don't know who Harriet Tubman is, my students don't know who Dolores Huerta is, so I need to go back and amp up my history and make sure that it's also developmentally appropriate, and then for the whole month, I just plan out, okay, we're going to cover achievements of people of color. We're going to talk about the bombing of Birmingham, but I'm going to make it developmentally appropriate. We're going to learn about Langston Hughes. We're going to learn about Maya Angelou poetry. So all of this, it's all tied together with the ELA slash ELD standards, but you got to be creative with it. Just really reflect and think, looking at all of this, what's going to help the students? And I want my students to understand that people of color did a lot for this country, but a lot of times we don't get credit for it. So I had to do more research and connect with my librarian to bring in more books, especially books like biographies and books that highlighted people of color and their achievements. I mean. Honestly, I didn't even know George Washington Carver worked with paint or any other agricultural kind of things. I just knew him for peanut butter. And so when I was able to bring in these books and, and share them with my students, a lot of their even their parents didn't know. So now I'm also building relationships with my parents through strengthening and providing my students more knowledge on their history. And so after we've done this little gallery walk, From there, I think I would do something where, okay, I want this person to do research. And I'd say, okay, you're in charge of researching this person. You're in charge of researching this person. And give each person a figure for them to research and then present on it. So now you're tying in biographies, which is another genre of writing the students should know. So it's a lot of just embedding in a creative way to make sure that students are engaged in their history. A lot of times within especially the third grade curriculum, we talk a lot about the missions and indigenous people. And we don't hear so much about, you know, what happened if somebody resisted a mission and what happened to these people? It was just more like, oh, this was a great place. And they learned language. They met new people. And they were it was all of this happy times when in reality, missions were not a happy place for people. So when we were learning about indigenous people and we got into about mid part of the unit, I decided to use one of the mid unit little quizzes. They're quick and they're easy to print and it tests the kids on vocabulary. So I was like, okay, I'll use it. And they go through the questions, so as we were reviewing them, one of the questions I had asked the students, missions were blank and their answers were A a good place for Indigenous people to be and, and it supported community. B, a place where they learned language and how to be a citizen or something like that. And then C, a place where they were mistreated and it was a horrible place to be. Or D, none of the above. So when I asked, okay, clap if you think the answer is A. People started to clap. I was like, okay. Clap if you think the answer is B. I had some, some claps here and there. Clap for a C, one or two. And D, no one clapped for that one, so I was like, "Interesting." I was like, you know what, class? The answer says that it's A, but I'm going to tell you, it really, it, it's C. Like it wasn't a good place for them to be, and I, I want you to understand this as I'm talking to you. That history, it's told a lot of times from from one side, and this story right now, it's only being told from one side, and I want you to understand that this land that we're on, you know, do you think that this belonged to us? A perfect example, We're in Berkeley, we're on a lot of Ohlone land. UC Berkeley is right down the street from my school. And in the book, the chapter was in our backyard. And it was like, the Ohlone people, they paved this land and they grew lots of crops. And then all of a sudden, the next paragraph was, UC Berkeley is now on Ohlone land. And I asked them, I was like, I want you to think about that phrase. Do you think that the Ohlone people gave up their land, what we're on now? Or do you think it was taken away? What, what do you think? And they were like, well, I thought that they gave the land, but now I don't think they did anymore, Mystery. And I'm like, would you want to give up your land if you worked hard for that and your family was there? And they're like, no, I wouldn't. And <laughs> I was like, exactly. These people didn't want to give up their land. It was taken from them. And I want you to understand that. The missions weren't a good place. People were mistreated there. And land was not just surrendered. It wasn't just given. You know, here you go. It was taken. I then changed up my instruction. I went back to the framework. And the essential knowledge that stuck out to me was essential knowledge number five. And it says students should know that enslaved people hated being enslaved and resisted bondage in many ways. So now with this framework, you're not just hitting the Common Core state standards. You're hitting ELD. You're supporting all students, and you're differentiating throughout the whole lessons. We are a school community, and we got to make sure that we know our students before we can serve them. And I can't stress that enough. What intrigues them? What history do they need to know? Then going forward, communication. What are you teaching? How are you teaching it? Talking to your principal, talking to your colleagues. That's the only way that we're going to change this system of misrepresentation and the master narrative. How are you teaching Cesar Chavez in Latinx months? How are you teaching about Hmong students or Asian Pacific Islanders? We got to get on the same page. And it may not necessarily be within your chapters, but if you had a unit on who's in my community and symbols, talk about symbols from different cultures. What do you think those mean? Expose your students to that. That's the only way that they're going to grow and be those Lifelong learners with those 21st century learning skills, critically thinking, collaborating, cooperating, and critically thinking about what they're learning in history and using the resources that Teaching Tolerance has to offer. And there's so much that goes with that framework. There's lesson plans on there. You can modify them and make them yours. So it's already there. And if you want to differentiate it, all you have to do is click on third grade, or if you're going to go to second grade, making sure that no student's left, no student left behind or no student's left out of this opportunity to learn about this history, that it's all of our history. But we have to go forward and make sure that we don't repeat those negative traumatic experiences. It really starts with the teacher. It starts with you doing your research to make sure that you are doing justice to the history.
1: Marvin's doing a lot there. I really like that he's modeling the gallery walk which is something that teachers do a lot in their classrooms and talking about the specific connections that he's wanting students to make. I like that he's mixing up Essential Knowledge 7 and Essential Knowledge 5, which is about resistance to enslavement. And making those connections to California history with the mission system feels to me that he's really taking seriously the idea that students should be making connections across historical periods while still digging deep into the details of history.
0: One of the things that really stuck out to me was how he was moving through time with the students and making these connections, but he was also allowing them to make judgments based on historical evidence, which I think is really critical. Not just simply telling them how they should assess these historical phenomena, but allowing them to make their own assessments. And those assessments, as he was pointing out with the example of the missions, often differ from the usual narrative that is told about race and power and enslavement in America.
1: You know, one of the things that Marman is really illustrating is how interdisciplinary thinking can be effective at weaving content in across the curriculum. For many teachers, that will actually lighten their load, so you're not trying to carve out a bunch of new time for a new subject so much as bringing it in across the curriculum.
0: Here is a special opportunity from Learning for Justice. By listening to this episode, Educators can earn a certificate for one hour of professional development. All you have to do is go to learningforjustice.org slash podcastpd, pd for professional development. That's podcast pd, all one word. You'll also find a link in the show notes. Then enter the unique code word for this episode, framework, all lowercase. Now back to our discussion about teaching slavery in elementary classrooms. So next we're going to hear from Alice Mitchell, and she teaches fifth grade in Boston, Massachusetts, and she's working on incorporating essential knowledge point number 12, which is slavery in all the places that are now the United States began with the enslavement of indigenous people. Here's Alice Mitchell.
4: I'm gonna be really vulnerable here. My scope and understanding of the history of indigenous people is very, very limited, which is sad because I went to school in the United States, college, graduate school in the United States, and I have never received any formal education around the enslavement of native people. I learned a lot about the enslavement of African people. Well, not a lot. I learned about the enslavement of African people. And when I got old enough to seek out my own resources, I sought out more information. But my understanding of what this same history looks like for the first peoples in this nation was non-existent. This is something that my kids deserve to know. It's part of their history, especially living in Massachusetts. And so that was where... I made the decision that I was bringing in some history of Native people, even though it wasn't in my mandated curriculum. The first time I decided to try an activity with my class, I decided to use our morning meeting time. It was the Tuesday before we were going off for Thanksgiving break. And, you know, usually in the morning, like our morning meetings, we greet each other and we play a game and, you know, they share about what they're going to do over the weekend. And I was like, hey, everyone, we're going to do something a little different today. You know, we are not going to be at school for the rest of the week because it's Thanksgiving break. And I've really been reflecting on what Thanksgiving means. And I asked them, why do we have Thanksgiving? what is it supposed to celebrate? And a lot of them had ideas because they did a unit on Native Americans and pilgrims, your traditional unit in third grade. And I think they talked a little bit about it in fourth grade. And we live in Boston, so we're pretty close to Plymouth Rock and everything. They were like, the pilgrims came over and they had a meal with Native Americans and that turned into Thanksgiving. The traditional answer that I'm sure when, if you ask your kids, a lot of them are going to say. And I was like, you know, that's really interesting. So let's just do a quick Google search. I'm really, really, really lucky because I work in a school that's one to one. So everybody in my classroom has access to their own Chromebooks. But I think you can do this activity if there's just one computer and they can look on onto the projector. So I was like, okay, everybody on your computers type in white people. And I was like, turn to the person next to you and talk to them about what you see. So I also typed in white people on my computer. So my computer was projected and they were looking over at each other's computers and just sharing what they noticed. For this part, I did let them just talk to each other and I was circulating and eavesdropping and listening to their responses. So I heard some pairs say like, oh, there's a lot of people in business suits. Somebody was like, oh, there's Taylor Swift. And I was like, okay, what did we notice when we put in white people? And they shared, oh, you know, there was a lot of pictures. The people looked really professional. They also said there were a lot of men in the pictures. So while they were talking, I wrote all of that down. And then I was like, okay, so let's put in the search for Black people. And I circulated paying attention to the things they were noticing. And if I remember correctly, there was athletes, there was, you know, musicians. So Beyonce was one of the options. And when I brought them back together, basically their observations, when they put in Black people, we can summarize it into photographs of athletes, entertainers, and Barack Obama so I charted down their responses to that and the last one we put in was Native American. Being transparent with my students about my journey and my level of understanding is really important and so I wanted them to know that I'm still trying to figure out the best identifiers to use for this community and it's still something that I'm learning about. And so I wanted them to know. I knew that putting a Native American would bring in more Google images. And so I also talked to the kids about using indigenous people when speaking about them. And I told them, we're going to use Native American just because I think we'll get more images. But anyway, so I put in Native American and they put in Native American. And the mood of the class, how do I say this? their excitement changed more to confusion and curiosity because there was a clear shift in what images had been presented. So this time the kids were saying, Oh, there's not as many photographs. The only color there is, is from a painting. And a lot of groups were like, these pictures are so old. And so when I brought them back together, I wrote down what they said, like old in all caps, because pretty much every group was like, these are old images and I wrote down a lot of paintings. Prior to this conversation, we've been talking a lot about how authors are very intentional about the words that they use and the sentences that they use to portray a certain message. You know, author's craft, that's one of the fifth grade ELA standards. And we had a little Snapchat situation. So we started talking about how technology can also portray a message. And so we looked at the three charts and I was like, okay, just so we talk about, you know, authors, they make intentional choices about the words and the sentences that they use to portray a message. What do these images tell us about the history of people in our country? And the conversation led to kids saying, When we put in Native American, they were all old pictures. And then one student was like, well, if we didn't know any better, we would think there weren't any left in the United States. And that was the key point I wanted my kids to get, that a lot of people still think that the Native people, the indigenous population is no longer thriving, is no longer part of the fabric of the United States, which is just not true. And if we look at the Google images, based on just what's presented, you would think that this is ancient history. That's kind of how I launched the conversation. We just saw that there were two native congresswomen who were elected. So this is a population that's still thriving, that's still part of modern, present-day United States of America. And we have to educate ourselves to make sure that we're not spreading these stereotypes. And then, And this I did not plan. I'm not going to take credit. This was all the kids. You know, fifth graders are very passionate. The conversation turned into a debate between should we still celebrate Thanksgiving or should we not if this holiday isn't fully recognizing the true history of Native peoples and is not truly recognizing that they're still a thriving community today? Yeah, so they had a very spirited debate about that. A lot of kids were very concerned with the food. And one student was like, well, I have to tell my brother. And his brother was four because I don't want him to get to fifth grade and think that all the Native, uh, he said Native Americans, were killed and they're not alive anymore. Because that's what I thought. And that was really satisfying for me. Just some questioning, is this something we should celebrate Why haven't we learned anything about this up until this point? And just that curiosity and them being piqued, I was very excited about. So now in this upcoming school year, using that as my foundation, I really want to build on their background knowledge from the enslavement of African people to connect it to a whole history of the enslavement of indigenous people and how they're connected and how the effects of indigenous slavery we're still seeing today, especially in that community, and be more intentional about starting it earlier in the year and keeping it not just a Thanksgiving conversation. Another thing that I was thinking of doing was I really want to figure out how I can connect with people from different indigenous communities close to our home. You know, we've already started school. And I did a land acknowledgement with my grade level team because I just thought it was so powerful just to ground us in the work that we do. And I think doing some sort of acknowledging of the tribal nations with my classroom would be an excellent way just to bring that quote unquote past history make it alive and make it something that they see as current and modern but i just want to make sure that i'm not offending and i'm not overstepping my bounds and i know that's a fear that a lot of us have in teaching when we're trying to learn and grapple with new information How can we act on it and how can we share it and teach about it without making mistakes? And I always think it's so funny because we tell our kids, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to be messy. And we don't give ourselves that grace as teachers. And so I think for me, I've tried to reach out to a lot of people, do a lot of reading and try to come up with understanding before I present it to my kids. But even though I know it's going to be messy and I know I'm afraid of offending, I still don't let that keep me from doing what I know is right. I just found this resource. It's called tribal.nation.ca and it is a resource that helps you identify what tribal nations are on the land that you are currently on. And I just really appreciate this resource because it helps bring What we view as the past, it helps bring it to the present. And it just changed my perspective. There's just so much history with Native peoples in Boston and Massachusetts. And so when I found out what tribal nations are on the land that we are currently on, talk about relevancy and talk about making connections, I was like, this is definitely something I want my students to know. And connected to the Google searches, you know, a lot of them are like, oh, this is ancient history, and, you know, this is anything we have to think about. But just grounding them and knowing these are people who lived and thrived on the land we're currently walking on that's been completely stolen and transformed. And I really want them to understand that their neighborhoods, as beautiful and unique as they are, not losing sight of the land and the people that came before us. This is going to help change the perspective of my students, which they're the ones who are going to go out into the world and make these changes. One thing that I especially want to work on this year is how can I make this relevant and how can I take whatever we learn about in class and charge my students so they feel empowered to take it into their communities, teach somebody else about it, and actually do something. When they hear about injustices or oppression or unfairness, innately, kids, they want to do something. Like my one student who was like, I'm going to tell my brother because he needs to know. Something as small as just telling somebody the new information you've learned and spreading more of the truth, I think is a great way for me to encourage my students to go home and tell your parents, your families, whoever their caregivers are ask them what they learned when they were growing up and teach them about what you've learned, spreading that new information with them at home. So I plan on reaching out to the tribal nation that was originally on the land that we're currently on. I really want to connect with people in this community and ask what their needs and desires are instead of me assuming this is what we can do to help having a way to get that information from them. And so I think one way we can do that is through letters and email and just having the kids ask, creating a letter campaign, because knowing them After we talk about this, they're going to say, what can we do or how can we change this? And so I think helping them see when you do want to help out a group, it's not your responsibility to decide what that group needs, but figuring out the tools and the methods you can use to reach out and get their voice and hear from them directly so they can do something about this. And we're not just sitting around talking, but we're actually engaging in action But that's also coupled with, you know, not just doing what I think is best and what I think is appropriate, but teaching kids to ask what people need and then supporting them that way. And I think that would help bring home the point of what I'm trying to teach them, that Native peoples, this is a thriving modern community, and so their voices are still Growing and loud in government and all different entities and bringing them in will help people see that more.
0: You know, one of the things that really leapt out at me uh, about what Alice just said was the situation that she found herself in as a teacher when thinking about how to go about teaching this history. And that is it's history that she herself was not taught. So she has to do some deep diving and preparation in order to bring this material to the classroom. It's one of the things that I think is really helpful about the framework and the resources that are provided is that it helps teachers learn this material as well so that they can bring it to their students in an informed way.
1: Yeah, I think that we have to support and scaffold, as we would say, in education teachers' learning in the same way that we support and scaffold student learning. The reality is that there is very little, if any, coverage of the enslavement of Indigenous people, and the emerging scholarship on this is really shocking, the scope, extent, and duration of enslavement of Indigenous people, and it's something that is frankly, just not going to be in a lot of textbooks. And so teachers shouldn't feel blamed or shamed that they themselves don't have this knowledge. And I think Alice is exactly modeling what we hope other teachers will do is say, okay, here are some resources that Teaching Tolerance is giving us and bringing their students into that conversation. And the other thing I want to lift up about Alice's approach and what her students found is illustration of this idea of the vanishing Indian that is a very common myth. It's a real problem that Indigenous people are often discussed in the past tense and portrayed in past tense, as Alice's students found out. And so I think this is a good and useful approach to contrast those representations for students. And we'll be talking more about how to counter the vanishing Indian myth in future episodes. One more thing that Alice is doing that I think is great and other teachers should do is to try to figure out whose land they're on and reach out to Native nations and leaders and communities that are around them. think that she will find, as many teachers do, that the leadership of Native nations and their cultural and interpretive institutions are very welcoming and interested in talking to folks and helping understand their rich cultural and historical traditions, as well as contemporary practices.
0: Well, and I think that's a great way to make the past present. So next we're going to hear from Marion Dingle, who teaches fourth grade in Atlanta, Georgia. And she's working on incorporating two essential knowledge points within her classroom instruction. Knowledge point 15 which states that in every place and time, enslaved people sought freedom, and essential knowledge 14, that enslavers adopted and spread false beliefs about racial inferiority, including many that still impact us today. Here's Marian Dingle.
5: When it comes to slavery, I think the story of resistance and resilience is the one that doesn't get told. And I think that's the story that impacts our kids the most. When kids start to see themselves in ways that are powerful and they see themselves as intelligent and capable of resisting and capable of thinking their way out of problems, they begin to see their world and their circumstances differently, but they begin to see themselves differently. I think many black kids have internalized shame around slavery I don't think that is their fault I think it's just the way in which we are socialized because there are so many historical facts that we don't know we don't know the insidiousness and the planning that went into slavery and all of the things that were done to us so we naturally I think internalized maybe there was something wrong with us maybe There's a reason why we were enslaved for so long. Maybe it was something that we didn't do, something that we didn't know. I think that shame for a lot of students will manifest itself in different ways. Sometimes that shame may look like a behavior problem. A lot of times it may look like anger. For children, especially at this age, they have a lot of feelings that they can't quite articulate. So talking to them about this is extremely important and i think from what i have seen in children that once we start peeling back those layers and they start learning about themselves that those feelings start to change once students know their history and they start knowing little pieces and you see that aha moment then you kind of see their chest punch out with with pride you can see it i see this in my kids every day but i also know that deeply because It's exactly how I felt. I felt this newfound pride that I had in myself and in my family and my ancestors because I knew that I was a survivor. I was one of the ones that was fortunate enough, yes, to survive the horrors, but also smart enough and resilient enough and I resisted enough so that I could be here. This is my 21st year as an educator. And I think a lot of what drives me is that I'm trying to right the wrongs of how I was taught myself. I want them to have textbook knowledge, evidence upon evidence upon evidence that what they have been through, through their history of their ancestry and who they are, matters, that they are absolutely a huge part of the fabric of this country because of what their ancestors have given through being enslaved that part is what i didn't get and that's what i'm trying to pass on now and i should say too it's not just that it's important for black kids learn about slavery i think all kids need to understand what actually happened because as i learn more and more i'm realizing that almost every facet of our lives now have everything to do with what happened in slavery. So I've been thinking a lot about how exactly I'm going to incorporate this history into our curriculum, thinking especially about resistance. Resistance can take many different forms and on the face of it may not look like resistance at all. One of the ways I want to teach the story of resistance and resilience is through music. I remember my parents always teaching me that there were a lot of codes and messages that were embedded in Negro spirituals. I remember one in particular that spoke to me because i I think maybe I had seen it as a child i'd I'd seen it in maybe I was watching Roots or something. It's weighed in the water, and the message that my parents told me was that enslaved people would tell themselves or remember to remind each other that if you are in fact trying to escape, that the moment that you see water, you should always go through it. You should wade in the water. That is your ticket to your liberation because when you go through the water, your scent can't be tracked by dogs. That just still sends goosebumps through me. So it's it's little things like that. The resistance, the intellectual power that the enslaved people had those things aren't really brought to the forefront and I think that's also very much tied to that essential knowledge about how enslavers adopted false beliefs because we are taught in textbooks that enslaved people weren't very smart that they were docile that may may even be lazy and they were forced to work when in fact the opposite is true It's important to teach about the misrepresentation of Black people throughout history. So another important source that I'm going to use is the 1619 Project. One thing that I discovered from the 1619 Project was that when enslavers would come to the auction block, some of the enslaved people were marketed as coming from a certain region, and that was because the enslavers knew that Africans coming from certain regions had certain knowledge that they would need to make their plantations profitable, to make their businesses profitable. So there was this knowledge that enslaved people were in fact intelligent on one hand, but on the other hand, there's this marketing that actually the opposite is true. So I'm thinking about how to talk about that duality, that hypocrisy with my students, how to show them that this is, in fact, gaslighting, meaning a practice in which people try to persuade you that what you see, the reality that you know to be true, is, in fact, not true at all, that that has happened historically and is still happening. I'm also thinking about current events and other stories of resistance and how to talk about those daily, perhaps in morning meeting, and how to connect the dots between how some of the things that are happening now are manifestations of things that happened historically in slavery. For example, my students are now in fourth grade, but in third grade in our state, they study Harriet Tubman. I'm thinking of taking a deeper dive into her life It wasn't just that she decided one day that she was going to help 400 or so enslaved people escape. There was actually planning involved. Another example is that Harriet had a blow to the head when she was a child, and that that resulted in her having seizures throughout her life. So she was able to plan out and help people escape while doing this around the seizures that she knew that she would have. I think that speaks to a lot of kids that may have physical disabilities or physical shortcomings, that they can do great things. Because even now, even though we probably don't know the whole story about Harriet, we're still celebrating that part. We still know that she is responsible for hundreds and hundreds of enslaved people receiving their freedom and convincing them that they actually should escape and they should trust her and having this incredible mind that was able to have all these maps in her head and to have a knowledge of all these different plantations and landscapes and how to actually pull this off. So I think that part is also important. Still another example is, of course, Dred Scott. Dred Scott decided to actually sue the government because of the displacement of their children. He, at the time, was living in a free state. And at the encouragement, and probably much more than encouragement, maybe nagging of his wife, he decided to sue um, because she knew that the future is in the family. And if they didn't sue, they didn't pursue this, that their family could likely be separated, which happened to many, many enslaved people. And I just think it's fascinating, just absolutely fascinating to me that families were still intact, that families, even though they were uh, torn apart, ripped apart, um, I think about the Middle Passage and how enslaved people were packed into slave ships and they were intentionally put with people that were not from their villages on purpose so that they couldn't communicate with each other. And all of these things were done and still we have a very strong communal spirit. We have this commitment to family and you just see so many different examples of that throughout history. I think That's the part that kids need to know. That's the part that I needed to know as a child. When I think about adding these new things into my curriculum, I want to be mindful about what types of challenges I may face and how I can be proactive in addressing those. I realize that there may be a lot of educators out there that are hesitant to engage in this. Maybe there is a bit of fear about what may happen to them, any resistance they may face. What I think is important to do really early, as early as possible, is not just to jump in this with students, but to engage your parents and your families, the caregivers of your students, because once you have them on board, you'll get so much more out of it. And and honestly, it's not just the students that need to learn this. It's the families as well. The dinner table conversations and the things that happen at home are going to reinforce what you do in the classroom in the first place. For example, when I decided that this is what I was going to do in my classroom, I invited parents to a parent meeting at the beginning of the school year where we can actually talk about what it is that I'm planning to do. And I just put it out there. I gave my reasons. For doing this, I cited different things that were happening in history and how, in my opinion, they were affecting their children, the things that I saw. And I addressed fears that my parents had and we got pretty vulnerable. Parents were honest and they said that they hadn't had conversations at home because they didn't know what to say and they didn't know how to address it, how far to go, what to say, what not to say. And these were from parents of different racial groups that had the same fears. And I think just having the conversation and acknowledging to each other that this was difficult was pretty transformative. So from the beginning, it felt like not just my agenda, but it felt like a co-creation that I, as the educator and the caregivers that were responsible for these children's well being, we were coming together and finding a solution of how we were going to enlighten them. Because in the end, we all agreed that this was important for them to know. And parents also were pretty honest about saying that there was a lot about this history that they didn't know either. So they welcomed the information, and I think they appreciated that we were having this conversation and that there was going to be a thoughtful approach to how we did this. We started doing it in morning meeting, and students would say, Oh, Mrs. Dingle, we talked about this last night, and this is what my family is saying so that the parents knew that we had a morning meeting every day and they knew that it would come up and students felt comfortable enough to bring home into the classroom. And it was really obvious that what was happening in the classroom was also getting into the home. I mean, I love teaching. I love mathematics. Anybody that knows me knows that. But this, having the experience that this history, this hard history was getting home and it was coming back to the classroom, like I said, it was absolutely transformative. So I would suggest to any educator who's feeling a little hesitant, talk to your parents about it and ask them how they would like to participate. There's a lot of different ways to get this done, but I think what we absolutely shouldn't do is continue to be silent. We've got to at least try. I know it's cliche, but as they say, the children are the future. So if we aspire to a better world, we've got to be able to trust the children with the truth.
0: So Marion really touches on a critical point and speaks directly to our students in the classroom, and particularly the students of color, and how they have been socialized in this world and how they have been taught, and why there is often a pushback When we introduce the subject of slavery, because it's so often taught in such a way, as she points out, that induces shame, which is unfortunate, which is wrong, which shouldn't be the case. Which also is why we have to teach resistance, because as she points out, resistance really lets students and young people, but especially students of color and African-American children, see not only enslaved people in a different light but also see themselves in a different light. And that is one of the great advantages of teaching this history in a way that is accurate and truthful.
1: Yeah, absolutely agree. Teachers should be teaching resistance that it wasn't just one rebellion. People who were enslaved were constantly thinking about and trying to get freedom. And it was very difficult to get freedom But it's something that every enslaved person wanted and was constantly thinking about. And I think we have to, as we started this episode, embed this idea of agency early and often. And I think it's very touching to hear that this idea of teaching can be itself an act of reparation.
0: That is so true. I couldn't agree more. Even framed like that. And it's not teaching a false history. It's actually just teaching the truth, teaching what we are supposed to be teaching all along, That really is a wonderful way of thinking of it.
1: You know, one thing she's doing that is really important is engaging families early and often in knowing and being active participants in their children's education so that these conversations can happen at home. And I've heard you talk before about how teachers really need to know their community in order to teach hard history.
0: Yeah, that's a critical point because communities and the families and the members of communities have a history We're teaching this history of slavery very poorly. And so it is really important for teachers to reach out to community members, to share with community members, not only the subject matter, but how they are approaching it, what they are approaching specifically, and what their expected outcomes are so that you get community buy-in and support. And that happens not only with what is going on in the classroom, but then that carries beyond the classroom as she points out, into people's homes, into people's living rooms, into the dining room, so that across the kitchen table, family members can have these discussions, which reinforce the importance of studying this history, which then adds extra encouragement for students to sit, listen, and learn. Kate, it was so good to have you on this episode. I'm so glad that we are continuing to partner on this project And I'm so glad that you're doing this wonderful work with teachers themselves. We're making a real difference here, and I'm looking forward to continuing to do it with you going forward.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, Hassan. It's such a pleasure to be able to work with you, and it's a real joy to listen to these teachers bringing this stuff to life in their classrooms. All right. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you.
0: Bria Wright has been a teacher in the Wake County, North Carolina public school system for four years. She currently teaches fifth grade. her favorite grade. Marvin Reed teaches third grade at the Thousand Oaks Elementary School in Berkeley, California. This is his second year teaching in the Bay Area. He is also the equity teacher leader at his school. Alice Mitchell is a fifth grade teacher in Boston, Massachusetts. This is her seventh year as a teacher. She is also on the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee at her school. Marion Dingle is a proud daughter of an educator and has been an elementary educator herself for 21 years. She currently teaches fourth grade in Atlanta, Georgia, and is passionate about both social justice and mathematics. And we're proud to say that all of the teachers who participated in this episode serve on the Teaching Tolerance Advisory Board. Kate Schuster is an education researcher and author based in Montgomery, Alabama. She is the project director for the Teaching Hard History Initiative, Dr. Schuster is also the author of Teaching Tolerance's Teaching the Movement Reports, evaluating the state of national education about the civil rights movement. Teaching Hard History is a podcast from Teaching Tolerance, a project of the Southern Poverty Law Center, helping teachers and schools prepare their students to be active participants in a diverse democracy. Teaching Tolerance offers free resources to educators who work with children from kindergarten through high school. You can find these online at tolerance.org. Most students leave high school without an adequate understanding of the role slavery played in the development of what would become the United States or how its legacy still influences us today. Now in our second season, This podcast is part of an effort to provide comprehensive tools for learning and teaching this critical topic. Teaching Tolerance provides free materials that include over 100 texts, sample inquiries, and a detailed K-12 framework for teaching the history of American slavery. You can also find these online at tolerance.org backslash history. Thanks to Ms. Wright, Mr. Reed, Ms. Mitchell, Ms. Dingle, and Dr. Schuster for sharing their insights with us. This podcast was produced by Shay Shackelford, with production assistance from Russell Gregg and content support from Gabriel Smith. And of course, Kate Schuster is our executive producer. Our theme song is Different Heroes by A Tribe Called Red, featuring Northern Voice, who graciously let us use it for this series. Additional music is by Chris Zabriskie. If you like what we're doing, please let your friends and colleagues know. Tell us what you think on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We always appreciate the feedback. I'm Dr. Hassan Kwame Jeffries, Associate Professor of History at The Ohio State University. And I'm your host for Teaching Hard History, American Slavery.